Thanks for joining us for another inspiring message from Elevate Church in Perth, Australia. For more information about Elevate Church or to contact us, head to our website, elevatechurch.me and take us wherever you go by downloading our Elevate Church AU app, available wherever you download your apps. This is a uh, series that we've called The Good Work and let me catch you up. The idea of this series, and this is the third week of four, is that you were born on purpose for a purpose. You're not just here by accident. You're not just here to kind of make up numbers, to kill time, to, to entertain yourself. To, to, you were born on purpose for a purpose. And, and God hasn't actually set that up for you. If you don't know what that purpose is, God hasn't actually set that up for you to be something that debilitates you, something that overwhelms you, something that you go, oh man, another pressure. Now I gotta find my purpose. It's actually probably something already in you that has an appetite to discover that purpose, that you have a sense that, you know what, I actually think that's right, that I actually was and am born on purpose, for a purpose. And here's the thing about God's purpose. It's actually hidden in plain sight, a bit like a Where's Wally cartoon. He's there, your purpose is there, but just like a Where's Wally cartoon, we actually have to go looking for it. We actually have to be proactive to seek out God's purpose in our lives. And there are some clues. God puts clues out there for us. One of the clues is the spiritual gifts that He's given us. In the, in the Bible, there's about 28 spiritual gifts listed and uh, Chances are that you don't have all 28 and I don't have all 28, but chances are that there's about two or three that will rise to the surface. Of this list of 28, there's two or three that you'll resonate with and think, you know what? Yeah, I, that's, that's me. I get that. That looks like me. And uh, in, in discovering your spiritual gifts, top two or three, there's a sense, there's a clue there that that's probably what I'm meant to be doing. I might not know all the specifics, but I, but I kind of, that helps me get in the arena. And what we've done to make it helpful for you with that being a key clue to you finding your purpose is in our Elevate app, in the Elevate group notes section, the messages for this series, scroll to the bottom, there's a link to a spiritual gifts tool that's being provided by Life Church. And I would encourage you to go, if you're like, oh, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are, Get the app, tap the Elevate group notes tile, go to the messages from this series, scroll to the bottom, and you'll see a link to a spiritual gifts guide. And just go through it and take time. Go through it once, twice, whatever you need. Check in with someone else. What do you think? Does this sound like me? Does it? That's a clue. Another clue is actually other people, that you actually see what other people are doing and think to yourself, I think that's maybe something that I'm meant to do. Maybe that's something that I, I could actually fashion a pattern of my life after. And one of those people in history is a guy named Nehemiah. And so what we're doing over this four-week series is taking a, a, a bit of a, a deep dive into the biggest slices of the life of this guy named Nehemiah. Now, if you're just dropping in the today for week three, let me catch you up, although we all will benefit from a refresh, I'm sure. Nehemiah was a guy that was living uh, and working for the king of Persia in the king's castle. He was a cupbearer, which is like a cupbearer. What the heck is that? The, the, the job of the cupbearer is like a butler, 
But it was like a, it was like a, a dangerous level butler because the job of most kings in that era rose to power because they'd actually killed off the last king. And therefore, they probably were under threat by someone else that wanted to take their place. So assassination attempts were kind of uh, commonplace in that time. And so kings would employ somebody to, to sample the food and to drink the, the wine before it was served to the king. And if the cupbearer uh, ate the food, drank the wine and died, then the king obviously didn't carry on with that particular menu item. Uh, this was the risky job that he had, but it was a pretty ordinary job, and he was doing that. Uh, and one day, his brother came to visit him. Now, his brother was living in Jerusalem, about 1,500 kilometers away. It was actually the place of Nehemiah's ancestry. And what had happened, uh, about 140 years prior to the, his brother paying him a visit, King Nebuchadnezzar had come in with his army and actually taken the Israelites captive from Jerusalem, taken them back to Babylon, and then not just enough to just take them out, but he actually destroyed the city. He, he, he crushed the temple that was uh, the temple you can read about, Solomon's temple, this magnificent temple, crushed it, crushed the homes, the places of business the walls of the city, the gates of the city, and crushed the culture of the people and ultimately crushed the spirits of the people. And they lived in exile for an extended period of time after sometime 50,000 of those Jews were let free to come back to Jerusalem and they committed themselves to try and rebuild the city. And they went at it for about 140 years but couldn't get it done. Their, their work stalled out. And it was in this particular moment, having been at it for 140 years, that Nehemiah's brother came to pay him a visit. And Nehemiah just inquired, hey, dude, hey, bro, what's going on back in Jerusalem? How's the rebuilding efforts going? And Nehemiah's brother said to him, you know what? Not real good. After 140 years, we haven't really made the level of progress that we thought we would make. So they were discouraged and here's this guy, cupbearer to the king of Persia, 1,500 kilometers away. He's just an ordinary guy. He's just working, and his brother comes to pay him a visit. And in that moment of hearing the, the bad news that the, that the attempts to rebuild the city of his ancestry had stalled out, he found himself beginning to cry. That in that moment, this meant something to him. He didn't just keep scrolling the gram. He actually stopped and was like, Wow. This gripped his heart. And after he cried some, he started praying. This idea that if it's big enough to cry about, it's big enough to pray about. And so he fell to his knees and, and started praying. And here's the thing. That's a great start. But at some point, if God's called you to do something about the gap, the problem, the damage, the brokenness, we've actually got to move beyond thoughts and prayers. Let's do some thoughts and prayers. And then at some point, we've got to actually get up off our knees and take a stand and get moving. And so what Nehemiah did is he actually approached the king, his boss. And essentially, I said this last week, he essentially put in his leave application. Hey, boss, uh, I got this thing that I think God's called me to do. And actually, when he went there to the king, he actually told the king what he felt God was calling him to do in one sentence. If you're going to make a pitch to your boss and your boss is busy, get it down to one sentence. 
Your boss will love you for it. They'll say yes to you just for the fact that you got it done in one sentence. Even if they don't agree, just thanks for not wasting my time. Yes, sign, leave, go. And Nehemiah said, boss, I I, I, want to go. This was the sentence. I want to go back to the place of my ancestors to rebuild the wall. Full stop. But being clear on the big idea in and of itself isn't enough. You go to your bank and you, you want to build a new home. You go to your bank, you go to the manager, you say, hey, I'd like to, to lend uh, $400,000 uh, to build a home. And they say, great, yeah, it's called a construction loan. They say, yeah, great, okay, we can consider that. Uh, show me the plan. And you say, the what? There's a, the plan. You want us to actually hand over $400,000. What's the plan? And you say, plan? Is that important? And they will not actually sign off on the loan until you bring them the plan. Well, the king was smart enough. He did the same thing. He said, okay, yeah, we could, we could, we could look into that. We could look at letting you go back to this place. Uh, what's the plan? And I, I kind of hovered over this last week, and, and I felt it was really important to, to major on last week. And let me just revisit. Some uh, corners of the church's sphere avoid this idea of making plans. And here's the, here's the line. Some of you may have heard this if you've been orbiting the church's sphere for any length of time. Here's the line that, uh, that translates, we're not into planning. Here's the line. You Because know, you can't say we're not into planning. That just sounds lazy. So you spiritualize it. You make it sound spiritual. What you say is, hmm, planning leaves no room for God to move. Because that sounds spiritual. Planning leaves no room for God to move. Here's my take. God claims to know everything. Now, you can throw that one out if you don't believe it. Okay, but I, I believe it. And if, here's the deal. If, you believe that God knows everything and in the run-up to doing the thing that God's called you to do, you haven't taken the time to ask him some questions about the how, then I'm sorry, you're the village idiot because he knows some of what it's going to take to get the job done. So don't just wait until it's go time. Start seeking him in the planning process. And actually, something that I didn't bring out last week, and, and, and it's easy to miss uh, in the story of Nehemiah, is that between the time that Nehemiah's brother brought him the bad news and the time that Nehemiah actually went to the king to ask for leave and provision was four months. And Nehemiah spent that four months praying and planning and praying and planning. So it should come as no surprise that when he eventually fronted the king, he was able to give a one-sentence mission statement and a plan. And the king was like, well, I don't like to waste resources, but man, you've really given this some thought. And Nehemiah's like, heck yeah. Four months, buddy. What do you say, buddy? You don't call the king buddy. He's asking for a leave certificate, not a death certificate. And so off he went. Now, he, he, he started the, the plan. 
And he got to this place. And now remember, when he got to Jerusalem, these people that he met there had been at this unsuccessfully for 140 years to the point where they had pretty much given up on the idea that this work was ever going to be completed. And yet along came Nehemiah. The man that God had called, the man that God had commissioned, the man that God had recognized the purpose on his life, and he started injecting passion. He didn't bring any experience, but he brought passion. He brought passion to the mix, and he started telling them, you know what, we can do this. And people started signing up. But just as Nehemiah was an unlikely candidate to lead this good work that God had called him to, the people that signed up to rebuild the city and rebuild the the houses, and rebuild the wall, and, and rebuild the gates, weren't masoners and carpenters. They were merchants and perfume makers. Christian Dior signed up to join Nehemiah to rebuild the city. And, and you think to yourself, if you, re, you think to yourself, not only could you be in that moment thinking to yourself, who does Nehemiah think he is? Because by the way, and I'm going to talk about this, some of what you believe is to be your purpose, you're going to share it with some people, and some of them, well-meaning people, are going to say, or maybe think but not say, who do you think you are? You say, it's fine. I got this. I got me some merchants and some perfume makers. We're going to get this thing done. And they're going to think to themselves, what have you been smoking? And here's where I want to pick the story up. If you've got our app, you can tap the Bible title. It's going to take you to this is the fourth chapter in this story. And and actually what had happened is up to this point, Nehemiah had had a dream run. The sort of dream runs you like to have green lights all the way. And then we get to chapter four. When Sanballat, I don't have time to explain who he is, but let me just say, not a good guy, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he exploded in anger, vilifying the Jews. In the company of his Samaritan cronies and military, he let loose. What are these miserable Jews doing? Remember, he's looking down on them as being, you guys, you've had 140 years to get this done, and you're a bunch of failures. So really? Really? Do they think they can get everything back to normal overnight, make building stones out of make-believe? He's talking to merchants and perfume makers. I think he's got a point. At his side, Tobiah the Ammonite jumped in and said, that's right. Ah, critics love company. Hmm. Who knew? What do they think they're building? Why? (laughs) If a fox climbed on that wall, it would fall to pieces under its weight. And here's a myth, and I've put this out there many, many times, that if you're new here, let me bust a myth. Some uh, corners of the church's fear have somehow fell to the thought that if there's opposition, that must be a sign that God doesn't want you to do it. And if and when I hear that, I say, you haven't read your Bible. Well, let me just even make it easy for you. You know the four parts that talk about Jesus' life written by four dudes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You haven't read any of them. Because if you had, you would notice that Jesus faced a lot of opposition. In fact, if my memory serves me right, he actually got killed on a cross. Looks like opposition to me. Yet, yet I also believe that in that moment while he was being nailed to that cross, he was right in the epicenter of God's will. So how is it that you would conclude 
that if there's opposition, it must be that you're outside the lane of what God wants you to do. In fact, often, often it's opposition that's confirmation that you're right in the midst of doing God's will. Here's the big idea. When the good work goes down, opposition shows up. Now, it's September. It doesn't just mean the first Sunday of the month here in Australia is Father's Day. It also means we're gearing up for finals month. And uh, look, apologies to East Coast people uh, from uh, the, the, the top of Victoria and up and podcast listeners from elsewhere. But let me just talk about AFL for a second. Australian Football League, Aussie rules, mate. In Aussie rules, your team sends 18 players onto the field. And by the time the game starts, the other team, referred to as the opposition... You tracking with me? They will have assigned 18 people respectively one-on-one to your 18 players. Now here's, here's, here's the fascinating part. If you're watching that game either from the grandstand or from the comfort of your living room, the opposition team will not have assigned somebody to you. So, so here's, here, no, come on now, come on, come on now. Look, this, this is why they pay me the big bucks. <laughs> if you don't want to experience any opposition, pro tip, stay out of the game. <laughs> Nehemiah prayed. Listen to us, dear God. See, Nehemiah just kept on praying. Oh, listen to us, dear God. We're so despised. I love this Aussie interpretation of what Nehemiah said. Boomerang their ridicule on their heads. Have their enemies cart them off as, like, if you've got your, highlight this in your Bible, because, like, there will be times when you'll want to pray this to God about other people, and it's just like, Hey, it's in the Bible. Have their enemies cart them off as war trophies to a land of no return. Don't forgive their iniquity. Don't wipe away their sin. They've insulted the merchants and the perfume makers. But we kept at it, repairing and rebuilding the wall. The whole wall was soon joined together and halfway to its intended height because the people had a heart for the work. I shared this uh, once, but it's been a while, and uh, you know I'm running out of new material. Uh, maybe about 18 months ago, two years ago, a group of uh, other leaders of local, some local churches, we got together for a couple of days at a, a function room nearby and just had a sort of a round table sharing best practices and so on and so forth. And towards the end of the, the time together, we got onto the topic of criticism, and you know, it's church leaders' cr- criticism. And, I just get my mouth shut in that particular subject. Um, and uh, one of the other guys, these are all great guys, one of the other guys sort of said to me, Mark, how do you handle criticism? And I said, the reason I stayed out of the conversation is I, I didn't have anything to contribute. And he tried to suck me into the conversation by targeting me. How do you handle criticism? And I said, no, how do you respond to criticism was the question. And I said, I don't. And they're like, huh? 
And I, and I quoted something from the CEO of Apple that I had read a few months prior to that, and it wasn't that it changed my trajectory, but it further cemented my trajectory. Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, had got asked a very similar question. How do you respond to criticism? And he simply answered, I'm pretty good at blocking out the noise. The critics will always exist, okay, if you're in the game. You have a choice and I have a choice about who we choose to listen to. And the whole idea about critics, it's actually changed uh, over the years. There was a time before the digital age where, where one of the uh, preferred methods, because critics very rarely come to you like directly, they prefer to lob grenades from their trench, uh, is they would have to um, get out a piece of paper and locate a pen and handwrite their critical letter and ideally sign it and then have to find an envelope and then have to find a stamp and then have to go to the post box and put it in there. You, that, just that process filtered out a lot of criticism because you had to have a reasonable level of motivation to go that far. Now we've got a whole new breed of critics called the keyboard critics. And the keyboard critics, they don't even have to leave their couch. They don't even have to leave their office. They don't even have to leave. They can just camp out in their trench and try to lob grenades into your trench. Now, they don't call it criticism. They call it starting a meaningful dialogue. Listen, whoever you are, there are these things we have called coffee shops. And do you know one of the best places to start a meaningful dialogue is at a coffee shop? So here's the deal. Unless you want to come and sit down at a coffee shop, just block out the noise. Nehemiah didn't engage with the critics. He prayed to God and said, get them, God. <laughs> and then he continued the work. Because here's the thing. You weren't called by the critics. You were called by God. So you don't have to answer to the critics. You only have to answer to God. God, how am I doing? God's like, well, ask the critics. No. He's like, ignore the critics. Continue the good work. I'll tell you when you're off base or I'll send some friends that will come to you with the spirit of a friend to say, hey, what about this? I don't know. So Nehemiah prayed and Continued because responding is just cyber's energy. And here's the thing about critics, especially keyboard critics. 
I mean, come and tell me after if you've had some wins in this, but I have very, very rarely ever heard anybody successfully change the mind of their critics by responding to them, especially in the digital space. For me, I do listen to feedback. Uh, I don't always agree with it, but I listen to it. In fact, it's important to listen to it because if you don't, you'll just end up in a, a trench that'll sound like an echo chamber and everybody will think exactly like you, which will limit your world ultimately. So it's good to get with people who don't agree with everything and don't see everything the exact same way you do, but with the interaction is always the spirit of a friend and the spirit of unity. And so for me, as much as I said I don't listen to critics, that's not to be understood as I don't listen to anybody and I would <laughs> encourage the same for you. But have some criteria that filters in and out who you actually listen to. And so I developed some criteria many years ago. Years and years ago, in the days of snail mail, one criteria was I don't read unsigned letters because they're sent by cowards and they give you no opportunity to actually respond in some meaningful way. So they went straight into uh, recycling. Um, but I do have some criteria that if, you know, there's people listen to it and they have to tick three boxes. And here's my three criteria. Number one, they have to listen. They have to love Jesus. See, for me, the good work that God's called me to do is to lead. Well, this is how I say it in my head. If I was doing a PhD, I probably wouldn't write it down this way. But in my head, my good work is to lead a no BS church in the Perth metro area that prioritizes outsiders and invests into the next generation. I'd massage the BS bit. I think wouldn't go well in a PhD thesis, but you get the idea. And so me leading a local church is I need to know people that are pushing back. They love Jesus. Number two, they love Elevate Church. And, and by the way, this is important. The word Elevate in there is important because I've had critics come to me that love another church and criticize me and tell me, you should be more like them. And I say, if you love that church so much, what the hell are you doing here? Go and bother them. But you won't bother them because you love them. It's fine. There's probably a reason why God's put more than just one church in, in, in the Perth metro area. Now, some people take that too far and they've been a member of every single church in the Perth metro area. And that's not God's best either. Bloom where you're planted. And if you're ever called out of a church, one of the reasons you're gonna know that you're called out of something is God's also sending you into something. He's not ever called you out to go and sit on, on the bench. And... Anyway. And then the third thing is, you, Louis is my wife, you've you got to love us and, and have our, our best interest in the heart for why you'd want to actually give some feedback. Now, this won't be your three criteria because your good work is different from my good work, but have a criteria. And, and <laughs> I was scooting in this morning. I thought, look, let's make it easy for you. Take Mark and Louis' name out and put your own in. There you go. There's a head start. I mean, like, my three criteria is you've got to love Mark and Louie. That's just, that's, that's just getting weird. Uh, now, you take out Elevate Church and insert the good work that God's called you to. That the person that's coming to you, they've got to want to see you achieve God's best in the good work that God's called you to. And they're not 
coming to you to try and tear you down or the good work down, but actually try to build you up and help you be more effective in the good work that God's called you to. And hey, if they love Jesus, well, that's the bonus. Another thing about criticism is most criticism comes from people who don't know you well or don't know the backstory well. And I said this last week, distance creates distortion. Distance creates distortion. So someone comes to you and they think they're seeing things clearly and they're explaining to you and sometimes you're thinking to myself, what, where in the world did you get that idea from? And the answer is from a distance. But if they come to you to seek understanding, guess what? There's an opportunity to close that distance and to get more clarity. Distance creates distortion. Proximity promotes clarity. Capiche? Good job. Our calling isn't to argue with critics. Our calling is to do the good work. All right, Nehemiah writes on, but soon word was going around in Judah. The builders are pooped. Naughty word in the Bible. The rubbish piles up. It's like New York City. We're in over our heads. We can't build this wall. Well, that's a change of tune from when the merchants and the perfume makers signed up. Now this is their cry. Now this is their spirit. At this time, the enemies are saying, well, they won't know what hit them. Before they know it, we'll be at their throats, killing them right and left. Wham, boom, 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 like mortal combat. And that'll put a stop to their work. And the Jews, who were their neighbors, kept reporting, here we go. This is one of those everyone says, everyone's saying, everyone's thinking. Which, by the way, when someone says that to you, ask for names. Oh, Mark, everyone's saying, really, tell me, the names of everyone. Well, everyone, just start with some specifics. Oh, well, not everyone. Yeah, I know. Because part of what a leader does is they don't just take the perception because for people, the perception becomes the reality. One of the challenges in leadership and one of the opportunities in leadership is what's called reframing. You think this way and you think the facts are this way but here's the thing guys here's the thing team here's the thing people let me show you what I see let me show you what God's doing let me speak about the future that God's called us to because the critics are coming at us they don't know the backstory. they don't know that I was a cupbearer and I'm out there and I'm an ordinary guy but God's called me God's given me favour God's given us provision God's brought us there we're halfway there guys you know what? If you could get halfway there, you could probably get all the way there just, just by doing this one thing. Keep going. All the things that got you halfway there, by the way, now, you know, by the way, you're now better at it than you were when you started. You're actually more likely to be able to finish the good work because now you've got half a city's worth of experience behind you. Well, the enemy is saying we can't do it. <sighs> Choose who you listen to. The enemies didn't call you, God's called us. The enemies didn't provide, God's provided. The enemies didn't bring us together, God's brought us together. And if God's brought us together, God's got us this far, God's fully capable of us finishing the good work. So block out the noise. They have us surrounded. They're going to attack. 
And this is Nehemiah, a leader. If we heard this once, we heard this 10 times. This leadership stuff exhausts me. You merchants and perfume makers, you're killing me. Because the the devil's ultimate goal and and the first domino that starts taking you off the good work is to get inside your head and inside your heart because the devil knows if he can discourage you, he can ultimately defeat you because defeat almost always starts from the inside out. The enemies can come at you, but if you've got courage, which by the way, one of the jobs of us and one of the reasons we gather together every week as a church, that was all good, is to encourage. That word literally means to put courage in, to say that out there is a good work and some enemies, and and yet we want to put courage in, not discourage. And it's going to be that strength and that courage and that reframing and that reminder of who's called you to this. It's going to keep you going. And so Nehemiah knew this, and he said, after looking things over, get the facts, people, not the perception. After looking things over, I stood up and I spoke to the nobles, the officials, and everyone else. Don't be afraid of them. Put your minds on the master, great and awesome, and then fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I hope that, and I said this at the beginning of this series, some of you already have clarity about the good work that God's called you to and probably are already doing it. Some of you maybe have clarity about the good work but aren't yet doing it. And then probably there's a third group that you started this series without a sense of that purpose. Regardless of where you are on the journey of doing the good work, there will be opposition. There will be enemies. There will be people trying to take you down. And here's what I want us to do in a moment is to actually stand and we're going to sing this song that we introduced earlier this morning, Another in the Fire. Because here's something that Nehemiah didn't know and yet he still stood strong in the face of opposition. He didn't know that there was someone named Jesus that was going to come and yet here we stand 2,000 years after Jesus came but many thousands of years after Nehemiah lived. He didn't have the full access like we do to God's Holy Spirit working in us and through us in every season and situation, yet we do. And, and so the reality for us when we start to get discouraged isn't to actually change the people on the field. It's to get greater clarity of who's actually with us, who's called us, who's in it with us. And uh, for you, I hope this morning is and will be a, a time of great encouragement to keep going with the good work, to get going with the good work, or to get more clarity about the good work. So how about we stand? And uh, this song's kind of like, I don't know, I'm not a musician. I find it very easy to sing, but I am very impressive. Uh, You'll figure it out. You'll get it. It's a privilege to play our part in all that God is doing in and through you. To find out what your next step 
could be or to partner with us to reach more and more people by giving financially, head to our website elevatechurch.me and download our Elevate Church AU app, available wherever you download your apps.